Tonight is kind of an odd topic, perfection versus completion. And I'm, I'm taking this, the terms from Carl Jung. He's the first one who really used this, this contrast. So first I'll talk about perfection and perfectionism. lot to say about perfectionism. Um, Perfectionism is, among other things, a mask. It's always a mask, because of course no one is perfect, you know. We all have our flaws, we all make mistakes, and so if anyone's playing the game of perfectionism, they're playing a game wearing a mask. And We could really say that the logic of perfectionism is that there are parts of me that are lovable, that are worthy of love. Those are the parts I can show the world. And there are other parts of me that are completely unlovable or or unworthy of belonging, and those I have to hide at all costs. And for someone deep in perfectionism, the whole dynamic is really driven by shame. Of course, the parts that we desperately want to hide are the parts imbued with shame. And I like the way that that Brene Brown frames it. This is a quote in the quote sheet. She says, perfectionism is not a way to avoid shame. Perfectionism is a form of shame. And so for someone deep in perfectionism, it's kind of a living hell because... They're constantly trying to hold off, you know, keep under wraps all the parts of themselves they're trying to hide. And of course, it's a no-win situation because everyone makes mistakes. Everyone has shortcomings, you know. Um, And so it's really a a miserable experience, uh, perfectionism. Now that's someone who is, how can I say someone who is locked in perfectionism, living a a very tightly controlled perfectionist life. But the logic of perfectionism plays out in other ways also. I think there there are a much larger number of people who are, shall we say, that are well-adjusted, say, in a certain range, so they can go through everyday life, you know, in an at-ease, well-adjusted way, but there are still places that they feel they need to hide at all costs. So they have more room in their psyche. You know, they can be, they can be relaxed and playful at times. You know, unlike a person who is wrapped up in perfectionism. But there's still places that, presumably places that don't come up every day, but places that they want to hide. And sometimes we we see with someone who seems otherwise happy and well-adjusted, sometimes they're triggered, and all of a sudden a whole series of irrational behaviors emerges, and and people who know them might think, well, what's going on with this person, you know? Um, To be triggered by toxic shame is always to feel that we're in a life-or-death situation. It it almost has the, the, um, the feeling of immediate threat, and so people often behave the way they would behave if their life were threatened.
Now, there's another way that, that the logic of perfectionism plays out. Very sadly, I think there are, there are folks who, they believe that there's parts of them that are, that are not worthy of love, but they, either they have given up on the mask or they, they, they never tried that, and they just think, okay, I'm bad, I'm not worthy, that's who I am, I'm not worthy of love. Um, and there are lots of people walking around with that and you know if I'm not worthy of love if I don't belong here you know maybe maybe I would medicate self-medicate with drugs or alcohol you know I think there are some people who who react to that place you know with a kind of anger and it either comes out passive aggressively or or an overt aggression um So very, very sad people who, who believe that they are fundamentally bad and not acceptable. And I think there's far too many people like that. Another thing I'll point out about, about the logic of perfectionism and, and really the whole situation of perfectionism, I don't want to say it, the dynamic of pushing pain away that we don't want to feel. When there's pain that we're pushing away that we don't want to feel, for example, early childhood pain, um, the act of pushing it away gives it energy. And so as it's pushing away, as we're pushing it away, it's becoming stronger and stronger. Um, and I think what often happens when people say are in their 20s, you know, they're, they're pushing it away and there's enough else to distract them in life in their 20s and, you know, they can, they can survive. But as people get into their, their 30s or 40s, it's like this pain builds up, gets stronger and stronger. And at some point, people can, can't hold it off anymore. Um, for some time, you know, this, this plays out in a variety of crises, um, midlife crises sometimes. Um, you know, if a person has enough resources when they reach that kind of crisis point, then they'll, they'll get help, they'll get support. And it can be potentially a tremendous healing experience. Um, unfortunately, I think there are so many people who don't know to look for help or don't think they deserve help or that sort of thing and just are um, overwhelmed by their pain. And I think what happens in a lot of those cases is suicide, which is which unfortunately, according you know, according to the the logic of perfectionism, that's the only escape, you know. It's very sad. And it's very sad in, in this society. The, the the number of suicides is just f- way out of control. It just is such a a screaming indication of how far this society has come from healing. So that first part of the Dharma talk is not the cheeriest part. The second part is much more optimistic, where I talk about the logic of completion. And again, I'm, I'm using Jung's word here, but the logic of, the, even though the word isn't used, the logic of completion is very much the logic of Buddhism. It's very much the logic of 
of Jesus's teaching and the example we see in the Gospels. It is also the logic of healing. Um, if the logic of perfectionism is that some parts of me are worth worthy of love and belonging and the rest needs to be hidden at all costs, the logic of completion is that all of me is worthy of love and belonging. You know, as, as I sometimes say, every single part of our psyche is made by love, is made of love, and is made for love. And the thing that is confusing or off-putting or, or foreign-sounding about, about, say, that statement, you know, every part of my psyche is worthy of love, um, one way to say it is that the logic of perfectionism believes the message of pain. It takes seriously and, and believes literally the message of pain. The logic of completion refuses to believe the message of pain. And it's this, it's this very funny dynamic, and I've talked about this a little before. Pain lies. And it's not necessarily, not necessarily all pain, but pain that we push away, and especially early childhood pain, pain that we've been pushing away for decades. Pain is just a fountain of lies. And in order to understand why this is, I think it's very helpful to think about, and this is an analogy I've made before, if you think about a two-year-old in temper tantrum, if you've ever had the pleasure of witnessing a two-year-old in temper tantrum, um, two-year-old in temper tantrum, once they, you know, they, they, they flip their lid, they get out of control, then they start saying horrible things like, you know, I hate mommy, I hate daddy, I want a new mommy and daddy, you know, like, all these things that ostensibly might be hurtful to parents, you know. Now, a wise parent expects this. A wise parent, especially who has been through temper tantrums before, totally expects this. And the wise parent totally ignores the verbal content that the kid is producing and, and attends purely to the real needs of the kid. If the kid is hungry or tired, just helping them to move towards satisfying their own real needs, you know, despite whatever they're saying. And I don't know, but but I think, like, we could ask the question, why does a two-year-old in temper tantrum say things like that? Um, my own intuition on what, what um, you know, the two-year-old logic would be is something like this, you know, I'm distressed. I'm scared because I don't know what to do about my distress. Maybe if I distress mommy and daddy, they'll know what to do with their distress and they can fix my distress. You know, and so it, in in a strange way, it's a it's a dysfunctional bid for connection. You know. Um, well, back to our own psyches any part of the psyche that was wounded in childhood is essentially in arrested development. It, it's stuck in that, you know, if we were, we experienced something traumatic at the age of one, two, or three, that part of our psyche holding that trauma is at the age of one, two, or three. And within the, 
within the, you might say, the house of the psyche, ego is the grown-up, you know, whether we like it or not. Ego is the grown-up. And so the children of the psyche are very much in temper tantrum. And they're saying the kinds of things to our ego that a two-year-old says when they're in temper tantrum with their parent, you know. And like a wise parent, the proper way to relate to these, these early childhood places is to ignore, completely ignore the verbal content of what they, they're saying and attend to their true needs. So it's paradoxical that the, that the, you know, the inner critic voice that is saying, you know, whatever an inner critic says, you know, you're, you're unworthy, you don't belong, you're not good enough, you know, blah, blah, blah. That inner critic's voice is really a child crying out for love and attention, you know. And it, it's really the insight of the logic of completion that every part of us, no matter how wounded, no matter how, you know, presenting as unlovable or unforgivable, um, every part of us is worthy of love. I often say that in the work of self-love, we have to love the places that feel unlovable, accept the places that feel unacceptable, and forgive the places that feel unforgivable. So the logic of completion, it is the logic of healing, you know. Nothing is as healing as just sustained, compassionate attention. And this is, this is of course, one of the many benefits of having a meditation practice, that we learn how to sustain our attention so we can actually give our own wounded places sustained, compassionate attention, which is healing. And of course, sustained, compassionate attention is what we get from a therapist, a healer, this sort of thing. So I'm going to close with a quote from a poem by David White. This is on the quote sheet. So I'll, I'll read this and then I'll distribute the quote sheet. This is from a poem, Faces at Braga. Faces at, so Braga, I'll explain, is a, a, a monastery. I want to say maybe in Nepal, somewhere in the Himalayas. I think in Nepal. Um, and it's famous because it has all these carved wooden faces of bodhisattvas. And David White tells the story of, you know, they they go into the monastery, they go into this chamber and someone, you know, they light the butter lamps and suddenly they see all these faces. And it's just astonishing because these faces, they're so warm with compassion that they look alive. They're wooden faces, but they look alive. And in fact, they look more alive than our faces that are, you know, you know, set in whatever, you know, puss we have on. You know, so he was this. He wrote this. This is that's the background for this poem. If only our own faces would allow the invisible carver's hand to bring the deep grain of love to the surface. If only we knew, as the carver knew, how the flaws in the wood led his searching chisel to the very core, we would smile too, and would not need faces immobilized by fear and the weight of things undone. When we fight with our failings, we ignore the entrance to the shrine itself and wrestle with the guardian, fierce figure on the side of good. And as we fight, 
Our eyes are hooded with grief and our mouths are dry with pain. If only we could give ourselves to the blows of the carver's hands, the lines in our faces would be the trace lines of rivers, feeding the sea where voices meet, praising the features of the mountain and the cloud and the sky. Our faces would fall away until we, growing younger toward death every day, would gather all our flaws in celebration to merge with them perfectly, impossibly, wedded to our essence, full of silence from the carver's hands. So I'll share the quote sheet. Put the quote sheet in the chat there. So at the top, I have the poem by David White. One of my favorite quotes from Confucius. The master said, if you look at their intentions, examine their motives, and scrutinize what brings them contentment, how can people hide who they are? How can they hide who they really are? There's something very profound about that. And it, it speaks also to the futility of trying to move through the world with a mask. Master Dogen said, seasons change, stars shine in the heaven, it's perfect wisdom. Regardless of whether we realize it or not, we are nothing but the Tao itself. A famous one from Rumi, out beyond all ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Emerson, the sage of Concord, said, The rose under my window makes no reference to former roses or better ones. They are what they are. They exist with God today. There is no time for them. There is simply the rose. It is perfect in every moment of its existence. But man postpones and remembers. He does not live in the present, but with reverted eye laments the past, or heedless of riches that surround him, stands tiptoe to foresee the future. He cannot be happy and strong until he lives with nature in the present, above time. I love that idea about being present and above time. Hazrat Inyat Khan simply said, God breaks the heart again and again and again until it stays open. Zen writer R.H. Blythe said, Perfect does not mean perfect actions in a perfect world, but appropriate actions in an imperfect world. Dolly says quite simply, have no fear of protection, perfection. You'll never reach it. You Prather says, perfectionism is a slow death. If everything were to just like, everything were just like I would want it to be, just like I would plan for it, then I would never experience anything new. My life would be an endless repetition of stale states. When I make a mistake, I experience something unexpected. The Zen teacher Bernie Glassman says, when you care about perfection, you care about an expectation. But there is also caring for where I am right now, for what's happening right now. When I spend time with students, they tell me they've read something in a book or heard something from a teacher that they don't think they're living up to. And I tell them, take care of yourself right now. Befriend what's happening, not just what you're supposed to be or how the world should be. 
This is where you are. So how do you care for yourself in this minute? Something very compassionate about that. Daphne's Rogue's Kingma said, If you're having trouble loving yourself, imagine that everyone in the world is a hungry soul whose life has been imperfect. Like you, they had imperfect parents. Like you, tragedies and difficulties befell them. If you could hear each person's story, you would probably be moved to tears and would want to reach out and embrace that person. You'd want to tell them that in spite of everything they've gone through, they have great value. You know, and the funny thing is it's easy to imagine that about others. It's easy to have that kind of compassion about others. It's much harder to really have that kind of genuine perspective on ourselves. Paul Coelho says, warriors of light are not perfect. Their beauty lies in accepting this fact and still desiring to grow and learn. Stephen Batchelor said, the moment we decide to stop and look at what is going on, like a swimmer suddenly changing course to swim upstream instead of downstream, we find ourselves battered by powerful currents we had never even expected, precisely because until that moment, we were largely living at their command. Tara Brock says, there is something wonderfully bold and liberating about saying yes to our entirely imperfect and messy life. Ben Fountain said, There were not such things as perfection in this world, only moments of such extreme transparency that you forgot yourself. A holy moment, if there ever was one. Brian Stevenson said, I've always known but never fully considered that being broken is what makes us human. We all have our reasons. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by things we never would have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. Brene Brown says, Authenticity is the daily practice of letting go who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. And the other Brene Brown quote I already quoted, Kristen Neff, who's done exceptional research on self-compassion, says, as I've defined it in my academic writing, self-compassion involves three components, being kind and caring to yourself rather than harshly self-critical, framing imperfections in terms of the shared human experience, and seeing things clearly without ignoring or exaggerating problems. Daniel Kupke says, Despite what you may believe, you can disappoint people and still be good enough. You can make mistakes and still be capable and talented. You can let people down and still be worthwhile and deserving of love. Everyone has disappointed someone they care about. Everyone messes up, lets people down, and makes mistakes. Not because we're inadequate or fundamentally inept, but because we're imperfect and fundamentally human. Expecting anything different is setting yourself up for failure. Rafsan al-Muwafar says, Beneath every perfectionist mind, there lives a poor soul dying from anguish and tired of fighting against the, the atrocious desire for making everything flawless. Izzy Odier says, Don't aim for perfection, aim for better than yesterday. 
Dr. David Tian says, there's scientific evidence for the satisfier over the maximizer. Those who get done get it done will generally be happy with the outcome and will be more effective than those who try to maximize every decision and hold off until they have the maximum amount of information. They're less happy with the outcome, whatever decision they do end up making. That decision is only marginally optimal in most cases and sometimes even worse. So get in the habit of being decisive. It is going to make you more effective and happier. And finally, Curtis Jones says, people often miss out on their own human genius because they're trying to be more perfect than the gods.